It is, uh, it's great to be with you, as always, anytime is just a, a blast to be in here uh, with you. It's a real privilege, so thank you. Let's pray. Let's ask God to help us with his word, and then uh, we'll jump right in, okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we get to look at these great words of yours in an old, old part of an old, old book. Way back when Israel was gathered on the plains of Moab after 40 years of wandering, Moses one more time um, brought your law to bear on their lives. And Lord, these words are um, some of the most beautiful words that have lasted. We pray, God, that you would help us to draw near to your words, that we might know you, that it might make an impact on our own hearts and lives. And then, Lord, may it make a huge difference in the homes we live in. May the, for these ladies here, Lord, their, their husbands and their children and um, anybody else they might live with, Lord, may, may those lives be impacted because these ladies draw near to you and your word and live a life of, that's a pursuit of your son, Jesus. So, God, we ask for your help. We just ask for your mercy on us. We ask for your grace. We ask for your power in our lives, and we ask for humility that we might sit under your word and let it speak over us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Deuteronomy chapter 6. I know your schedule said the Beatitudes, but uh, Tom's on sabbatical, and so you get me instead. <laughs> um, and I haven't put that lesson together. Uh, I wish Tom was here. I'd like to hear what he has to say. So uh, as you're turning to Deuteronomy 6, just basically to give you a, a kind of a big picture of what we're going to try to do today. The, the main idea of today's lesson is um, to show how unified discipline one and discipline two are in God's mind. Okay. So how, how unified is the, the, the pursuit of, 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 shepherd, of shepherding your heart to the word of God, to know God that is inseparable from what you then go do in your home in his mind. And way back here on page 224 on, in my Bible, some of the earliest pages in your Bible, this was on God's mind and this is what he was after uh, for his people. And secondly, what you'll need to do is you'll need to take this lesson today and probably maybe go way back to September 29th, which was your second meeting, and maybe think back through or listen again or just at least look through your notes on that whole Bible survey of the home. Because this is one passage that fits into that whole survey from Genesis all the way to the end of the New Testament. So um, if you want to do that, that, you know, that would probably be helpful. So let me just read verses 1 to 9 from Deuteronomy 6, and you can follow along. Moses says, now this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. And here's where we're specifically going to focus. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gate. On your gates. Um, I put a little summary here for you. What we're going to do is you're going to have a longer introduction and then there's just two points today. It's, um, the first one is you'll see in another page or so here, uh, or maybe it's on your first page, the discipline of the heart for the Old Testament believer. And then the second main point is the discipline of the home for the Old Testament believer. So just to help you um, understand the book of Deuteronomy a little bit before we look at this specific passage, I have a quote there for you on a summary of the book. God in this book appears in a strong covenantal setting. 
He is the great king. He is the Lord of the covenant. The Mosaic covenant portrays God as the great king who entered into a treaty or a covenant with Israel so that he became their God and they became his people. This is where he's really formalizing his relationship with Israel through the covenant, through Mosaic covenant. Uh, an outline for the book could be um, put this way before you here. In the first five verses, uh, you have Moses um, just being revealed to them who the covenant mediator is. In fact, if you go back to chapter 1, verse 5, just for a moment to help you set it uh, geographically in your mind. They've gone across the Jordan, chapter 1, verse 5. They're into the land of Moab, so they're on the plains of Moab. And Moses undertook to expound this law. He is re-preaching the law. It's the second giving of the law. You know, when uh, they were in the wilderness up on the mountain, Exodus began all of that. Leviticus continued that. Numbers, they, they're, they're wandering. And now Deuteronomy means the second law. This is the second giving of the law. It's not a different law. It's the second giving of the same law. So this is what's happening. Um, Moses is the covenant mediator in the first five verses. In chapter 1, verse 6 through 449, he's kind of walking back through the covenant history. This is how they got to where they are across the Jordan on the plains of Moab. And then the main section of the letter, chapter 5 through chapter 26, is just the covenant life. You get the Ten Commandments reiterated again in chapter 5 and just covenant life kind of walked through again. In chapters 27 to 30, you have the covenant sanctions where the covenant is ratified by them. There's blessings and curses uh, said back and forth to each other. And the end of the book is about the covenant continuity. How is this going to continue when we know that Moses doesn't get to go with them? So what's covenant life going to be like without Moses? So there's kind of an outline for the book. And obviously we're fitting right down there in chapter 5 through 26, the early part of that. And what we're going to focus in on today is really starting at verse 4 in chapter 6. Um, the verse there introduces really the reader um, to the God of Israel, Yahweh. And that in particular, he is the very core of their life. He's the center of their life. He is their life. If they have him, they have life. If they don't have him, they don't have life. Um, everything flows out of this. And verse four is really a call to Israel to not drift from him. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Um, when it starts off in verse six and it says, or I'm sorry, in verse four, it says, Hear, O Israel. The Hebrew word for that is Shema, and so this is called the Shema. Um, hear, O Israel, it's an imperative, and it includes that, in, that, that call to hear is a call to obey, such that if you heard it but you didn't act on it, it could be said you really didn't hear it at all. Um, I have a quote there for you from Merrill. He says, to hear is tantamount to obey, especially in a covenant context like this. That is, to hear God without putting into effect the command is not to hear him at all. So that's the idea. Um, if any Israelite, after hearing this spoken, would say, yeah, 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 I hear you. No, no, you didn't. That's not what's being talked about. Not asking if words spoken in air traveled through, vibrated inside your ear, and you felt some kind of stimulation. Did you hear this with the intent to obey? And this is, I just want to remind you, this is all in light of everything that Yahweh has done for them. We're, we're dropping down into redemptive history on the plains of Moab with a group of people called Israel. Um, so this is in light of everything that God has done for them prior to this. Um, remember first, they were to just be a people under the Abrahamic covenant, <coughs> which is justification by faith alone. That's grace. They were to be a people who were saved by grace. Abraham was saved by grace. He didn't do any works. He believed God and God credited to him as righteousness. And they are the children of Abraham. And so remind yourself always that Israel, anytime you're dealing with law, that law is not the starting point. Grace was the starting point for them. That does not mean that every Israelite believed. You could take on the name of, of your father and your tribe and not be saved. But that doesn't mean that Grace wasn't foundational underneath the people. It was the foundation that God put underneath them. And then remember this display of God's grace prior. They were slaves in Egypt, and God went there and got them. It wasn't their idea to break free, and they didn't do it in their own strength. They did it in the power of Yahweh. So remember that God saved by grace. 
And that God went in grace and mercy to Israel and brought them out. Um, And then he made a covenant with them in the wilderness saying, hear me with the intent of obeying. That hear me with the intent of obeying sits on top of those two massive displays of grace. Okay? This is not God saying, I've got some rules for you. I'm going to put them in front of you. Do what you can with them and show me what you got. And then I'll see if I will act. That is not what is going on. God has only ever been the same. He's saved by grace through faith alone in the Old Testament. And we sit here with rules for Israel only on the basis of that. Okay? So I just want to remind you of that. Uh, They were to be a people who were believers in Yahweh already in the pattern of Abraham who believed. And they were to listen closely for the purpose of obedience so that they could align themselves with God and live in a way that was pleasing to him. Now listen, uh, we have the same thing in our New Testament in regards to us. Go to James chapter 1. You're very familiar with this, I'm sure. James chapter 1 verse 23. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a what? Doer. He is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he's immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the one of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. Look, this is, this is the way God has always been from the left part of your Bible to the right part of your Bible. You need to hear it, but not merely hear it. You must be a doer of what you have heard. And we have a life that we are to live. That's, that's the church's version in James chapter 1 and Deuteronomy 6 is Israel's version. Uh, some things never change in your Bible, and that would be God from left to right. But then there's some things that change a lot, like Israel's commands to what we're commanded. Uh, Nobody here is abstaining probably from pork, lobster, things like that. Some things change quite a bit, uh, but God does not change. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, that little summary, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, is, is probably the most potent and succinct summary of Yahweh up to this point in your Bible. Um, If you think about it, we're only in the fifth book of the Bible. And what's being revealed about him right here is something very, very important. It's almost like Moses, here's your second chance of preaching the law to them again. How would you summarize Yahweh so far for Israel? Well, it would be this. He's the one and only God and the only thing in life that matters. He's the center of everything. Take Yahweh out of their midst and they lose their distinction as a people. They become a lifeless nation just like the rest. Take Yahweh out of the midst once they're in the promised land and they look just like the Amorites, the Hittites, any of the other ites around. In fact, keep your hand in Deuteronomy 6, but go back to Exodus chapter 33 for a moment. Exodus 33 verse 16. Look at how crucial Moses believed and knew that God was to them. Uh, This is after the, the golden calf incident. God has told Moses, I'm not going with you anymore. I'll send an angel with you, but I'm not going with you because I'm just going to kill you all. And so Moses is up back up on the mountain and Moses is pleading with um, God to come. Come with us, please. Tell me who it is that is going to come. And, you know, he he uh, he pleads with him. Show me your glory. But look at verse 16. For how then this is Moses talking to Yahweh. How then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight and I and your people? How can it be known that I and your people have found favor in your sight? Is it not by your going with us so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all of the other people who are upon the face of the earth? What was the only difference between Israel and the Amorites and the Hittites? What was the only difference? Yahweh! That's it. And that's what he's saying back in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. And there's lots of debate about what that actually means. I've got a quote there from you, for you from Macintosh. I think that sums it up well. All the grammatical possibilities point in the same direction. It points to the uniqueness of Yahweh. It points to the supremacy of Yahweh, the God of Israel. The unity of God is stressed here with Yahweh as one. With that statement, whatever is being communicated is that there's one God. His name is Yahweh. 
He is one whole. He is a united being. He's not a split off God in splintered pieces. Um, God's distance then from the invented deities of the nations is being stressed here. He's our God. He's not their God. He's our God. And Israel's strength lies not only in the worship of Yahweh, but in the exclusive worship of him. That's what's being stressed. He is our God and he is the only one. Now, why would that be so important at this point on the plains of Moab to say to Israel? Why would that be? What's the big deal? Well, I I want you to um, think about what lied behind them in Egypt. Um, Egypt had a plethora of idols. And now I want you to think they're on the plains of Moab. They haven't gone into the promised land yet. What lies in front of them? Nations with tons and tons of idols. And so here they sit again with God, sandwiched between those two idolatry factories called Egypt and Canaan. And he says to them, he's our God and he's the only one. And he's one. He can't be split up. Why is that important? Now, here's what I want you to do with me. I want you to go to Ezekiel chapter 20. And that's right. I did say Ezekiel chapter 20. I want you to turn there because what you get in Ezekiel 20 is you find out a little bit more of what God discovered when he went into Egypt to get Israel. Now, we have the Exodus. We have the story of what happened when Moses went back. And you remember the whole thing of the the burning bush? And Moses going, don't send me. I'm not good at talking. Um, and, but he went back anyway. We have a very detailed account of what happened. But we don't have everything in Exodus. But what's interesting is Ezekiel 20 tells us more. See, if you never read Ezekiel, you don't know this stuff. If, if these just remain the crispy white pages in your Bible that are all stuck together, you miss so much of what God has. Now watch this. Chapter 20, verse 5. Say to them, thus says Yahweh, uh, the, the, the Lord Yahweh, on the day when I chose Israel and swore to the descendants of the house of Jacob and made myself known to them in the land of Egypt, when I swore to them saying, I am the Lord your God. On that day, I swore to them to bring them out from the land of Egypt into a land that I had selected for them, flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all lands. I said to them there back in Egypt, right? I said this to Israel. Cast away each of you the detestable things of his eyes and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am Yahweh, your God. What is Israel doing in Egypt? They're playing around with idols, the idols of Egypt. But they rebelled against me in Egypt and they were not willing to listen to me in Egypt And they did not cast away the detestable things of their eyes, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I resolved to pour out my wrath on them to accomplish my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. Did you know that? Did you know that there was a time when Moses went back that God almost said, I'm just going to kill him here. I'm done with him. Verse nine, but I acted for the sake of my name that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived in whose sight I made myself known to them by bringing them out of the land of Egypt. So they were idolaters in Egypt. They became what Egypt was. Verse 10, so I took them out of the land of Egypt and I brought them into the wilderness. I gave them my statutes and informed them of my ordinances by which if a man observes them, he will live. I also gave them my Sabbath to be a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. By the way, that's the point of law. That's why he gave the law was to sanctify them, not to save them, not to have them develop their own works righteousness to impress God. But he gave them the law to sanctify them. Verse 13, but the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes and they rejected my ordinances by which if a man observes them, he will live. And my Sabbath, they greatly profaned. Then I resolved to pour out my wrath on them in the wilderness to annihilate them. But I acted for the sake of my name that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations before whose sight I had brought them out. Also, I swore to them in the wilderness that I would not bring them into the land which I had given them flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all lands, because they rejected my ordinances and asked for my statutes. They did not walk in them. They even profaned my Sabbath for their heart continually in the wilderness went after their what? Idols. 
Okay, so why does Moses have to say this back in chapter 6 of, of Deuteronomy? Because all they do is worship idols. They were in Egypt, worshiping the idols of, of Egypt. They came out into the wilderness. They brought all of those idols with them, and they were still worshiping those idols. The, the land they're about to go in is full of idols. Go back to Deuteronomy 6 now. And actually look at Deuteronomy 7. Watch this. When Yahweh, your God, brings you into the land where you're going to possess it, and he clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you. And when Yahweh, your God, delivers them before you and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not marry with them, intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. Why? For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will quickly destroy you. But here's what you do. You smash everything. You grind it to powder. You burn it. You drown it. You bury it. You just get rid of their idols. Listen, where do they come from? Idolatry. Where are they going? Idolatry. What have they been? Idolaters. This is all they are. And so for Moses then to say to them in chapter six, verse four, you better hear me and obey me on this. Hear Yahweh, obey him in this. You only have one God. He is our God. He does not splinter off into multiple idols. He is completely distinct from any other God, and he is your God. If Israel stays near to Yahweh, there's hope. And she will have fullness of life with him, in their covenant with him. And that God has something he wants to say to them first. What does he want to say to them first? Watch this. What's verse five say? Here's the command. Love me. Love me. The God who said, I'll only save you on the basis of grace through faith and justify you on the basis of that. I'm not going to ask you to perform for me. And the God who said, um, you've been slaves for 400 years in Egypt, I'll come get you. And the God who says, you need to hear me and you need to obey me. Um, that God on the foundation of grace says, love me. That's what that God is looking for, is love from his people. That's what is on his mind. And it is to be a love from the heart um, of the inner man. So now we're finally at number one. <laughs> The discipline of the heart for the Old Testament believer. It's in verses 5 and 6. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. This is to be a, a love that consumes the whole heart, meaning the whole inner man. Do you remember what heart is and what it is not? Your heart is not a piece of you. Your heart is you inwardly before God. This outer Temple falls away, dies, goes into the dirt, but the heart continues. The inner man, the soul continues on, right? And this is totally unique. The gods of Egypt didn't ask any of their devotees to love them. In fact, no king or prince ever thought, here's what I'm going to command my subjects. Love me. Nobody ever thought of that. But this is God. Matthew Henry says in the quote there, did ever any prince make a law that his subject should love him? Yet such is the condescension of the divine grace that this is made the first and the great commandment of God's law that we love him and that we perform all other parts of our duty to him from a principle of love. Now, what does he not mean when he says in verse five, you shall love me with your heart and with your soul and with all your might, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. He's not sending you on a splicing analysis of man. Splice yourself up in whatever way you can. In fact, go find your heart and wherever the heart is, make sure you gather up all of that within you and love me with that. And then I want you to go find wherever your soul is inside you and gather up all of that and love me from your soul. And then I want you to go find wherever your might or your strength is. I want you to go gather all of that up that's not what he's saying to do. He's not trying to splice man up or splice Israel up. He's saying to them, let me just summarize you in a couple of different ways. You are heart. 
and you are soul, uh, you are strength, your might. Love me with everything you are. She's just gathering them all up into one. He's not trying to send a man on a splicing analysis of himself. He's gathering all that man is into one. Because if you get the inner man, you get the man. If you get the soul, you get the man. If you get a man's might or his strength, you get him. Um, to give you an idea of what's meant by strength, I have a quote there for you from Macintosh. Strength is not so much a person's physical power as his intensity. God wants earnestness in a person's love. He desires not merely that we possess a faith or love, but that our faith or our love should possess us. And so here's my question for you. When you think of the Old Covenant, when you think of your Old Testament, when you think of Mosaic Law, do you think first about love for God? Is that the thing that comes first to your mind when you think of the Old Testament and you think of the law? Do you think of love for God? That's what God thinks of first. That's what he thinks of first. It's love for me. Isn't that amazing? Yahweh's people, Israel, they weren't guilty because first and foremost, they broke dietary laws and then they broke some social laws. They broke some sacrificial laws or they even broke the Ten Commandments. That's not why they were guilty first and foremost before God. They were guilty first and foremost before Yahweh because they didn't love him. And as a result of people who didn't love him, they broke social laws and dietary laws and sacrificial laws and all of that. In God's mind, love has always been the issue. The cure for any disobedience in a believer's life is to grow love for God. It's to grow for love for God. Uh, let me give you an illustration. Probably the closest covenant idea like this in our minds, in our culture today, is probably the covenant of marriage. Um, the marriage covenant is full of vows, right? You get... The, the bride and the groom stand up next to each other and they've got vows that they pledge to each other. They pledge to keep. They pledge to obey, right? One says, will you, will you, will you? And they say, I will, I will, I will. I'll do anything, right? Yeah. Sounds very law-like, doesn't it? Why does nobody, why does the bride um, never on her wedding day hear that like it's law? Why, why does no woman ever stop and go, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. There's just a lot of law-like stuff going on here. Why does, why does she never feel that way? Because of love. Listen, you might think that law and love don't go together. In God's mind, they do go together. And you know that to be true on your wedding day because you've got a lot of law that's being spouted by a, a pastor and you're just, you're just saying, I will, I will, I will, I will. Whatever you say, I will. I'll do it. Okay, they go together. What does Jesus say in John 14, verse 21? If anyone has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And I will love him, and my father will disclose himself to him. So this is true even in Jesus' day. And I've got this quote for you there from Macintosh. Jesus would later insist in John 14, 21, the same thing. His disciples could hardly have missed the point of the statement in which Jesus insisted on the same devotion that Israel had been commanded to give Yahweh. You can't just read that and go, well, of course Jesus can ask you to love him. Because listen, in his day, he was a rabbi walking around with some nutty followers and he is asking Israelite followers of him to do the very same thing that Yahweh asked all of Israel to do. A rabbi in front of them is saying to them, Deuteronomy 6, 5 stuff. If you have my commandments, have you heard with the intent to obey? If you have them and you keep them, you're loving me. That should have made everybody stop on the scene and say, now, wait a minute, who are you? Who are you? Love is everywhere in the New Testament. Uh, Matthew 22, verses 36 to 40. You have the repeat of this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In 1 Corinthians 16, verse 22 
Paul says, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. I mean, you're either, you either love Yahweh, you either love Jesus, you either love the Lord, or you're, you're under a curse. Ephesians 6.24, Paul ends his letter saying, we are those who, um, we, those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. And go to John chapter 21. I love this. This is so helpful for men and women like Peter. John 21, Jesus is raised from the dead. Peter made his huge, gigantic promises. Remember? Though all may fall away from you, I won't. I'm ready to die with you. Remember that? And he failed massively. And he is so undone in his failure that he's pretty sure that the one thing that he should do is just stop being a follower of Jesus and he should just go back to fishing. So he goes back and he fishes. And the other disciples say, well, I'll go with you. And then they're in the boat and all of a sudden there's a guy on the beach and there's a fire going. And the guy from the beach says, children, do you have anything? No, we've fished all night. We don't have anything. Why don't you put the net on the other side of the boat? I mean, can you imagine what a fisherman would think? You gotta be kidding me. We fished up and down this all night, both sides of it. Just put it on the other side. Put it on the other side, and there are so many fish that have just been waiting there at the direction of their creator that when they put the net in, they all swam in. And it nearly started breaking. And John, I think it's John, says, It's the Lord. So Peter puts his clothes on, jumps in, swims to the beach, and there's already fish on the fire. Where do you get the fish? He doesn't need the fish. He just makes fish with his words. And so he, you know what Jesus does with him? He three times comes to him, right? And the reason it's three is because there were what? Three denials of Jesus. So he's restoring Peter. And, and how does he restore Peter? Peter, will you stop being so foolish now? Will you, will you, will you really stop? It just drives me crazy. You do this every time. Um, Peter, will you promise to do things better next time? Peter, will you just get some accountability around you? Man, you're just, you need some accountability. No, he doesn't do any of those things because he takes Peter all the way back to the, to what? He takes him back to the foundation of his relationship with Jesus Christ, which is from our side, after grace, through faith, is love. We love Jesus. We love Jesus. Peter, do you? Do you? And three times Peter said, yes. Peter needed to remember that. And so do women like you. And so do men like me. We're the ones who make big promises to God. We fail. And we don't keep those promises. And we need to be reminded at the very center and foundation of our relationship that it's one of love for Jesus. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 6. Yahweh's people, Israel, whose life is bound up in Yahweh, they discover something amazing. That God has provided them a means by which their love for him might be kept up. A, a means by which their love gets to be maintained and promoted and nurtured. A way in which their love for him will not undergo decay. What did he give them? Verse 6, without a break anywhere, these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. Now, why is it important that he said heart? Because he just said, love me with all of your heart. These words need to be on your heart, your inner man, right? Those words need to first advance, find their resting place, their dwelling place in the heart. Yahweh's intent all the way back here, in, um, way back on the plains of Moab with Israel. His intent way back then for them is still the same thing that Christ has for us today and it has been this, that you, your love for God must move towards God's word in order to bring it to the heart of, of yourself, at the heart of the New Testament believer. We are to love God and the first thing that we grab should be his words and we should put them to our heart to keep up the love for God. See, they're inseparable in God's mind. 
in the New Testament, the intent is still that the word of God needs to come into contact with the heart. I'm going to take you to a couple of passages. Why don't you go to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, verses 9 to 15. This is the parable of the uh, the sower who goes out and he casts seed. And he explains in the parable that the, the seed is what? It's the word of God. You, you cast the word everywhere, you preach it everywhere, you teach it everywhere. Look at Luke 8, verse 9. <clears throat> His disciples began questioning him, and he says, it's been explained to you. Verse 11, now this is the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and he takes away the word from their heart so that they will not believe and be saved. Listen, does the devil understand what God wants at the heart level, love for him, and if the devil knows that he can get the word and not let it touch the heart, that's mission accomplished from his side of things. Verse um, 13, those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. They have no firm root. Really not, there's no real attachment. They believe for a while in a time of temptation, they fall away. The seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones which have heard. And as they go on their way, they're choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life. And it brings no fruit to maturity. But watch this. But the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart. And they hold it fast. And they bear fruit with perseverance. And the thought that should be on our minds is how do you get that good and honest heart? And that only comes from salvation, from conversion, right? But you see, the point there that Jesus is making is the word must come into full contact with what? The heart. Your, uh, your heart and God's word are supposed to be in a full contact sport with each other all the time. Okay? How about look at the end of Luke, chapter 24. Jesus is resurrected from the dead. He is walking with a couple of his disciples on the way to Emmaus, a little village not far away. And he has a little conversation with them. And they are a little clueless about what's going on. And he says to them in verse 25, he said to them, Luke 24, verse 25, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. What was the problem? There were actually words that the prophets spoke, but the heart was what? Slow in having contact with it. Wasn't it necessary for Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in the scriptures. Now look over at verse 32. They spend time with him. They eat bread and all of a sudden their eyes are open. They recognize who he is and then he's just gone. Verse 32. They said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us? And what was he speaking to them? The the Old Testament? While he was explaining the scriptures, so they, there was something going on when Jesus was talking to them where the words of the scriptures were just, and the heart was just on fire. Look, the, the point is, the inner man and the word of God are supposed to be together all the time. One last passage that says it as well as any. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, do you know it? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 <clears throat> For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow. And the word of God is able to judge the thoughts and the attentions of the inner man. Listen, your heart, your inner self and the word of God must come into contact. Go all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter six. And that is exactly what God was saying. To Israel, these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. Matthew Henry has this quote. God's words must be laid up on our heart that our thoughts may be daily conversant with them and employed about them and thereby the whole soul may be brought to abide and act under the influence and impression of them. This immediately follows upon the law of loving God with all your heart for those that do so will lay up his word in their hearts both as an evidence and effect of that love as a means to preserve and increase it. He that loves God loves his Bible. Listen, if you're wrestling with, and we've all been there, I've been there. If you're wrestling with, you know, just really being in the word of God, you need to bring yourself back face to face with this and be confronted with this. It's an opportunity for me to express my love for God. And so if I don't want to do that, I I need to, that needs to deal with me and I need to deal with that. That's the place to start and plead with God. God, change me. 
fan whatever love was once there into a flame so that I do love you and I want to be in your word. And this is what discipline one is all about. You can write down Colossians 3.16. There's another one. Let the word of Christ richly dwell in you. Right? Colossians 3.16. But this is what discipline one is all about. Listen, women, be, be the person who constantly brings her heart to the word of God so that God might graciously reveal more of himself through those words and your love for God can get fanned into a flame there and that can happen over and over again all throughout the day so that you can then be guided to proper expressions of obedience, which is an expression of that love. And that goes on all day. Listen, every Christian, this is what it means to be a Christian. And you and I just don't wake up and we just do this naturally. Nobody here today woke up and three hours later realized, oh my goodness, I didn't even realize I was loving God by looking at his word. I, I don't know how that happened. We have to discipline ourselves. That's why we call it a discipline. And we've got grace from God. We have power from God. We have new resources in the new creation that we are to discipline ourselves for this. And we're not going to make the assumption that because you're a Christian, you do this and you know how to do it. I never want to make that assumption about myself or anybody else. We're going to disciple each other and discipline ourselves to do this. Some days it'll go better than other days. Some weeks, some months better than other weeks and months. Should we not, shouldn't, should not the women of our church be known first and foremost as women who love Jesus? And as a result, they love their Bibles. That's what we want. That's what needs to happen in your home, Right? Which takes us now to number two. And just so you know, the last point here is much shorter than the first one and the intro. The discipline of the home for the Old Testament believer. Look at verses seven to nine. Without any break, just a rapid fire command. What's the next thing? Verse seven, you shall teach them diligently to your sons. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Um, In Israel, these words had to advance beyond the heart of the father and the mother, but had to advance even into the children. In verse 7, he says, you shall teach them diligently. That idea of diligently, there's not really, it's an interesting word picture. It somehow is involving a, a tool and a stone, the diligent part. And so there's two different thoughts of what's going on. And either one of them, I think, are illustrations. And it's probably hard to say which one is the actual thing. Um, but it's, it's, it's capturing something of a way of, of, a, of a metal stone tool, maybe a knife or maybe an engraving tool, and it's constant contact on a stone. And so there's two quotes here I have for you that help explain this. If it's the idea of a, of a knife being sharpened on a stone, it means frequently repeat these things to them. Try all ways of instilling uh, them into their minds and making them pierce into their hearts as In sharpening a knife, it first turned on this side, it is then turned on that one, and back and forth, over and over. And you're diligently just moving it back and forth. It might mean something like that. Teach your kids diligently, Israel, this. Let it come into contact with them all the time. Or if it's the idea of engraving, it's the next one. The image is that of an engraver on a monument who takes a hammer and chisel in hand, and with painstaking care, he etches a text into the face of a solid slab of granite. The sheer labor, the diligence that would be required for that, is daunting indeed, but once done, the message is there to stay. So whatever idea is going on there and the meaning, it really probably doesn't matter. The idea, the point is, is just that it has to be going on over and over and over and over In your home, bring God's word to the hearts of others diligently through your teaching. That is what he is saying to the families of Israel. Um, Yahweh is the one and only center of life. You love him. His words are in our heart. And now I, I want you children to hear this over and over and over and over and over. Those precious words had to advance into the household. And can you imagine what a nation they would have been had this actually happened across the board? What a, what a, what a bright light this nation would have been. And God's, God's plan in the Old Testament is not the, for um, saving the nations. 
is not the way that it is in the New Testament for saving the nations. Um, in the New Testament, we're the church and we go out to go get them, right? In the Old Testament, they were to be a light and the nations would come to them. Can you imagine if they had been this? Um, and you shall talk of them. So you, you teach them and you're talking about them. You shall um, talk of them when you sit and when you walk. Listen, it, it's not merely a quiet time. It's not just that your kids need to see you having a quiet time. I think that's really good, by the way. Let them see you just sitting there reading your Bible. That's really good. Um, but it's not merely a quiet time and then you just put your Bible away and you get on with the day. No, you're walking with them. You're on the way. Uh, you're walking in the way. And these words are constantly coming from you. The only way they're going to keep coming from you is if you've, what, first stored up your own heart with these things. Um, you do them during occasions of inactivity, like you're sitting. You do it when you are having occasions of activity, when you're walking. When you lie down and when you rise up, that would be the bookends on the day. Um, the bookends of the day were times to impress the word of God on the heart. And I think that is really important to do in your family. Um, I think it's really important to that one of the last things your kids need to hear from you and even your husband is, is something about who God is in his word. Um, especially when your kids are little and especially if you've been tanning their hide all day long. Do you want your little one to go to bed remembering, I'm in trouble all the time. I wonder what mommy thinks about me. You know what? Bring God's word to bear somehow on your child to help them set their minds uh, to, to see that in its right place. Yeah, you were in trouble a lot today. And now let me tell you about who God is. And I want you to know that I love you. I love being your mommy. I get to be your mommy. <coughs> or whatever, right? Uh, very important for your little ones to have that. Um, what else is said here? Look at verse 8. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. And we know what Israel did is they actually made little boxes that kind of dangled in front of their eyes. And they had tassels that were on their um, garments. And there were little ways of remembering simple little commands. Um, and so they actually did this. And what Moses is commanding here is that these commandments actually be on the person. They be on the body. Uh, I have two quotes for you here from McIntosh and Spurgeon. I think they catch the heart behind this. The commandments were to be sovereign over individual Israelites. They were to serve as constraints or as guides on their hands and as mental checks upon their thinking. Now, just full stop for a minute. If the word of God in some way or shape or form is always around your hands and you're trying to do work and they're constantly kind of in the way, you're always having to think about, oh, whatever my hands are doing, the word of God has something to say about that. Or it's constantly dangling in your eyes and you're having to kind of move it out of the way. You're like, oh, whatever I'm looking at, whatever I'm concentrating on, oh, the word of God. I think that's capturing the heart of what God was after here. The purpose of using such symbolism was to connect God's law with the everyday routine matters of life. Nothing was to be considered outside the scope of his authority. The next quote there, thou shalt see by them. Spurgeon says, you, you shall see by these words. You shall see with these words. You shall see through these words. Uh, it just becomes your worldview, your lens through which you see everything, was the idea. And then even one more step beyond that in the household, verse 9, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Um, Merrill says in this quote, the form of the commandment is in any case most significant. After ordering that the covenant commandments be worn on the person of the faithful Israelite, Moses expanded the sphere of covenant claim to the house and then to the village. In this manner, the person and his entire family and the community became identified as the people of the Lord whose word was everywhere. And what a nation that would have been. So you leave your house in the morning and it's written on the doorposts of your house and you're stepping outside and you're thinking, oh, the word of God needs to be on my mind. You leave your property, you go out the gate, and there's, there it is. And you step out into the world to whatever you're going to do, and the word of God was there. You come home after being in the world and laboring wherever you were doing, and you come home and you get to the gate. Oh, I need to be ready. 
Word of God. That's right. And you come into the house, and before you greet your wife or greet your kids or greet your husband, there's the Word again. Right? So, discipline one, inseparable from discipline two, and what you do in the home. So just a reminder again, maybe, maybe take this lesson, uh, put it back in the biblical survey of the home and household relationships, walk forward through your Bible. Uh, we spent a lot of time in an Old Testament text. It's good to make sure you fortify that also with the New Testament texts that speak um, to us in the church as well. But Deuteronomy 6 shows you how inseparable the two disciplines were in God's mind. And certainly that has not changed for us. And so labor in your life to discipline yourself so as to keep those two disciplines from pulling apart. It will be easy for that to happen in your life where you'll go through times where you will be satisfied that it's just you reading your Bible and you're just pursuing the Lord. And it's just, you know, I just, it takes a lot of work to pass it on to the other ones in my home. Don't, don't let yourself pull it apart. Or there's going to be other times where you're going to find yourself rushing past your own filling up of your own soul with the word of God to quickly just get to them and care for them. Don't let it pull apart the other way, but keep these two together because in God's mind, they are together, right? All right, let's pray. Well, Father, what your word talks about here um, is so much higher and better than what I practice and what I do. And I know what these ladies do as well. Lord, we are weak and we want to grow, and we need your help. Would you please come and meet each one of us where we are and help us to grow in the ways that we need to in either of these two disciplines or both. And Lord, may you um, bless this pursuit of you that you have us on. We need you to, Lord, even in our own strength, we are insufficient to um, grow this love for you that you have given to us. The only reason we love you is because you first loved us. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. We give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.